rather in 2006. I'm sorry. It's okay. I think and, that's the uh, the government calling. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to the You Bet Smart podcast. We got a little bit of a different podcast for you today. Chris and Jake are not in the studio for the intro and outro of the podcast, and we're going to split this podcast up into two separate podcasts. Uh, today, we are interviewing Sean Lempel. He became an expert for us for this podcast on sports betting law. He is a lawyer, and he researched sports betting, found out the history of sports betting law for the United States and for the state of California, which is the state that we're in. We had a bunch of questions for him. Um, we got into the U.S. a little bit more than California, and we're going to split this one up into two separate podcasts. Uh, so episode 20A and episode 20B. A is going to be about the United States law. B is going to be about sports betting law in California. Uh, but first, let's get to the $10,000 bankrolls. Um, we're still positive. We're still up, but still on a downslide. Both the Jake's player props and my bankroll are about even. They're both, we started with $10,000 each, and they're both at just under $15,000. Um, so our $20,000 combined bankroll is now at $30,000, which at one point it was almost up to $60,000. Now it's down to thirty. dollars It's going to be tough to beat that uh, That that goal that we set to get it by year five. Uh, but hopefully we can turn it around in the summer with baseball. Um, don't forget to rate this podcast five stars and subscribe. Also, you can sign up and get all of our picks at dubclub.win. Subscribe to YouTube. We have all of our podcasts up on YouTube now. You can see the, the video of everything, not just the audio. And uh, Chris does a great job of editing those. Um, they really came out great. Follow us on Twitter at YouBetSmart. And enjoy the interview with Sean Lampel. It was a really good one. Sean, how are how you doing? I'm doing excellent. I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Let's get into it. What is the Commerce Clause? Yeah, and even before I get into that, I just want to quickly say this. It's a... Uh, kind of essential under the circumstances uh, because of my profession. Uh, nothing I'm going to say today uh, should constitute legal advice. It's all just general information and uh, is not intended to be legal advice for anyone in particular that's listening. So, but yeah, with that said, I'm going to kind of go into a bit of the start with the federal regulation of sports betting, because I think that makes the most sense. And then we can move into the state. So yeah, commerce clause is where it all starts. Um, Commerce Clause is basically, it's Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the U.S. Constitution. What it says is essentially that Congress has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. So this is just basically the basis for the federal government to step in and regulate any kind of interstate commerce. And again, when I say interstate, I'm referring to commerce that crosses state borders. So um, this theoretically would be the basis for regulating sports betting if it implicated cross-border commerce. It doesn't necessarily need to, but it could. So um, with, with that said, for a very long period of time, the federal government took a very hands-off approach when it came to regulating sports betting. And I've kind of informally maybe called this period the first period of non-regulation. And you have it basically going from 1787, which is when our constitution was signed until 1951. And I'll get to a little bit later what happened in 1951. But it was during this first period of non-regulation that you see the emergence of a lot of the, uh, the sports leagues that we know and enjoy today. Um, in particular, there's the Professional Baseball League that started in 1876. And you got the National League that technically started in 1876 and then the American League in 1901. But even literally from within one year of the foundation of the National League, you already had uh, sports betting permeating the, the, the field. And you had not only fans betting on it, but you had players betting on it, coaches betting on it. And with that, unfortunately, comes uh, the, the likelihood or potential of 
players throwing games, which uh, will become a problem as you'll see later on. So it was actually discovered that the Louisville Grays were actually throwing games as early as 1877, one year after the foundation of the National League, which is kind of remarkable. So, but you know, with this said, the general attitude of the federal government and, and just of fans in general was to not really care too much about it. I think they viewed sports betting as maybe just a natural component of being a fan and, and following professional sports. So I, I do think though, that it, when it got to the point of uh, players throwing games, that it became a little bit more troubling, but just as a kind of an aside, just to give you an example of how acceptable it was for not only fans to be betting, but in this case, uh, a manager of a team, there was uh, the team, the then Chicago Colts, which was, you know, an MLB team in Chicago at the time in 1894, uh, quoted uh, the basically a member of the team saying that Uncle Anson, who was their manager, has already started making wagers on the position that the Chicago that the Chicago Colts will have in the race for the National League pennant this year. He put up one hundred dollars, which, by the way, in 1894 is not a small amount of money, but he put up one hundred dollars a few days ago that his team would finish higher in the race than the Pittsburgh Pirates. So not only are, uh, unlike, you know, later uh, situations with Pete Rose, um, not only was um, it okay, but people were totally just willing to admit in national publications that they were willing to bet on uh, sports games of this site of this kind. And I think one of the most notable issues with this, and it's kind of become subsequently fairly famous, is the 1919 World Series, um, which is commonly called, referred to as the Black Sox World Series, which uh, Arnold Rothstein, who I don't know if you guys have ever seen Boardwalk Empire, but he was a, a character in the show, but he's also a real person. And he was um, one of the most influential people in sports betting in the early 1900s. Through his essentially contacts with some of the, the folks playing on both teams was able to uh, essentially manipulate the world series of all games being thrown and uh, many hundreds of thousands of dollars, which would translate into millions now were made as a result of that. And uh, I, you would think that the federal government or state governments would step in at this point, but even that was insufficient to make uh, them want to take any action. So it's pretty remarkable in light of that. But the first time you see uh, something that would amount to kind of real regulation of, it's not sports betting yet, but just of gambling in general would be of all places in Nevada, not, not uh, particularly a big surprise, but they passed a bill called Assembly Bill 98 in 1931. Uh, basically what this did is it made a number of games legal, games like slot machines, poker, a lot of the traditional games that you see in casinos being played. And this essentially gave rise to what is the legal gaming industry and the regulated modern casinos that we all go to today. And even with this, uh, the federal government decided to take no action. So I want to real quick go back to what I spoke about at the beginning, which was the Commerce Clause. And I was hopefully careful to clarify that the Commerce Clause itself in the text of it only allows for interstate commerce, meaning regulation of interstate commerce, commerce crossing state lines. But you may ask yourself, okay, what about uh, sports betting that occurs entirely within, let's say, California, if theoretically it was legal here? Uh, you have a person making a bet in California on a California team. The, the sports book is entirely in California, and all the winnings are paid entirely within California. Theoretically, the, the Commerce Clause, as it's written, would not allow for the federal government to step in because there theoretically would be no interstate commerce there it would be only intra-state, meaning commerce only within one state. However, in 1942, there was a, a landmark Supreme Court decision, doesn't particularly have anything to do with sports betting, but it would allow for the federal government to step in into these theoretically intra-state gambling arrangements. It was called Wickard v. Filburn. I won't go into the specifics, but it essentially dealt with uh, the growing of wheat, the growing of personal wheat for personal consumption, that was being sold in surplus only within the state. And yet to essentially sidestep this problem that, uh, that you had with the, the Commerce Clause only allowing for regulation of interstate commerce, the Supreme Court invented a new principle which is commonly referred to as the aggregation principle. And by this principle, what it essentially means is 
if an activity which occurs entirely within one state, so it does not cross state lines, if that activity, when aggregated, meaning if everyone else also did it, if that in aggregate would have a substantial effect on interstate commerce, even if it's only occurring within the state, then that became the basis for the federal government to step in and regulate it. And it's only really through this, uh, this Supreme Court holding in Wickard v. Filburn that you'll get to see the federal government actually stepping in because the reality is most gambling occurs within one state. You know, look at classic, the example of, you know, betting in Nevada, you're, you're betting in Nevada, the sports books in Nevada, you're getting paid in Nevada. So it's all happening within one state. So theoretically should be outside the purview of the federal government. But with this holding, it could be said, and I think it's a, a fair argument to make that that activity when aggregated in everyone doing it does have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And it essentially became the, the opening for the federal government to act. And so the implication this has for sports betting is, is that when sports betting, when aggregated, could in fact have that substantial effect on interstate commerce. So uh, we next have the next kind of landmark uh, that we have in our chronology is again, back in Nevada of all places, uh, no surprise, which is in 1949. Uh, and you get basically following the legalization of, in, of legal gambling in 1931, you had a group of bookmakers, uh, sports bookmakers in Nevada that petitioned their state government to allow for the running of legal sports books. And they were successful and as of 1949, and sports betting was actually made legal in Nevada. And it's basically one of the first examples that you see in the entire country of not just gambling being legalized, but in particular, sports betting being legalized. Because whereas before this, we had essentially laissez-faire, hands-off approach toward uh, sports betting, now you have a government, in this case, a state government, stepping in and saying, no, not only are we going to be hands off, we're going to embrace it and we're going to regulate it and we're going to make money off of it. So as a result of this, uh, the amending of Senate Bill 146 to 1949, bookmakers in Nevada were finally given permission and the legal authority to accept bets on all professional sports, NFL, NHL, MLB, NBA, et cetera, and also to horse racing. And finally, it was with the passage of this law in 1949, when the federal government was looking to Nevada and realizing how many multi-millions of dollars that they were earning in the tax revenue, that they finally said it was their time to act. So this will essentially bring to a close what I had referred to as the first period of non-regulation. So only two years later, 1951, it's rather remarkable that you get uh, turn around and get legislation going this quickly. But when it comes to uh, to money, people tend to act more quickly than in other situations. So in 1951, the U.S. Congress passed a federal excise tax on Las Vegas sports books, and it stipulated that the sports books had to pay 10%, a 10% tax to stay in operation. And I want to clarify, this is not a 10% tax on profits, on the profits that the sports book is making, which is traditionally how you would uh, create a tax scheme. You tax profits and revenue people make. This was a tax on the entire handle, meaning all of the money that is coming into the sports book operation. So, in so fact, is it kind of like a, sorry, sorry off, is it kind of like a sales tax? So when a transaction is made, that's when it gets taxed? Uh, yeah, yes, yes. Essentially, yeah, it's a very good analogy. Yes, correct. So it's not just the profit being made by the person selling something in a sales tax environment. It would be like having to pay the tax that's relational to the value of the thing being sold, or in this case, the value of the bet being taken on by the book. It's a great analogy. Yes, absolutely. So the reason this is uh, fundamentally a very different thing than taxing just profits is as I said, before the winnings and the, the wins and the losses get divvied up, the sports book had to pay this 10% tax, which is you know, essentially pretty exorbitant under the circumstances. And uh, this was not only a means for Congress to, the US Congress, to try to get some of this money that they saw Nevada was getting in, but on another level, it was a form of what's referred to as a sin tax which is a tax being placed on something to essentially discourage 
uh, people from doing something, or in this case, it was to discourage other states from enacting laws similar to the laws that were passed in Nevada. So unfortunately, with this piece of legislation and the effect that this significant tax had on it, it basically drove a majority of the legal sports books underground. And it took away from the legitimate regulated channels of, of tax, of taxing and, and of betting legally. So essentially what unfortunately ended up happening is, and no surprise, uh, the mob stepped in. And the mob realized that there was this massive market here of folks that wanted to play sports bets, but did not want to pay the exorbitant 10% tax and sports books that wanted to take bets, but didn't want to have to pay this exorbitant 10% tax. And so you get basically the mob stepping in and getting connections with uh, underground sports books and even making connections with players. And it essentially became a problem so big that unfortunately the federal government thought it was time to step in again because the, the previous legislation was insufficient to, to handle the problem of the mob domination. So uh, in, in 1961, and uh, just to put this in kind of chronological context here, so 1961 is during the presidency of John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy's younger brother, Bobby Kennedy, was the attorney general, uh, nominated by his older brother, John. And one of uh, Robert Kennedy's biggest uh, kind of goals and one of the things that he was trying to pursue as the attorney general was the disenfranchisement of the mob and all of the control they had on a whole variety of industries. I mean, they were controlling unions at the time. They were really heavy at the ports and the garment industries, manufacturing, on top of a lot of your other traditional illegal uh, industries. But among those was, as I mentioned before, their control of this illegal sports betting. And so in an effort to try to fight this and curtail this control uh, through uh, the, the kind of leadership of John F. Kennedy and his administration, the Interstate Wire Act of 1961 was passed. So this was actually a criminal statute, uh, unlike the earlier federal regulation, which amounted to a tax revenue excise tax. This actually made it illegal and criminally illegal to the point where, of course, you could be imprisoned and fined, et cetera, for violating it. But it made it illegal to pass gambling information and instructions across state lines through the use of electronic wires. So uh, in particular, what the Wire Act did was basically two things. It made it illegal to use wire communication uh, facilities in order to host a betting service or act as um, an outlet for sports betting. And it also prohibited the use of wire communication transmission to place a bet. So basically what this does is it criminalizes the activity on the side of the sports book taking bets, and it criminalizes the activity of the sports better by placing the bets. And this was essentially um, an effort again, as I said, to disenfranchise the mob, but uh, it was again within the context of the commerce clause because it only was able to limit the transmission of this information across state lines. So um, it, it basically was also, I'd say, a way of trying to, um, trying to fight and protect against uh, the competition that some of these legal state-run lotteries were facing from illegal lotteries. They were commonly called numbers games that literally go back to the late 1800s that were commonly uh, per, uh, commonly facilitated by by the mafia again, which were essentially just lotteries that were not sanctioned by the, the state government. So this law was in part an effort to try to protect those from competition. And, uh, and in turn, it forced sports wagering to become a largely local thing, again, because the context of this law prevented interstate transmission. So what you essentially got was um, Nevada and in particular Las Vegas now became the predominant place to place legitimate bets on US sports and US sporting events. So it really was a huge boon to Vegas essentially and it became the outlet for Vegas to be the predominant place where people make these bets. Was it also illegal to give advice over a wire transfer? So could you was it just illegal just to place the bets or could you also give advice and that would be illegal? So it's, a, it's an interesting question. So it, it would probably be a case-by-case -case situation, but 
I, I would say that it very well could fall under the purview of this law to even pass advice because the law itself legalizes the passing of gambling information and instructions. So you could easily argue if you're a prosecutor that someone using a phone line calling one state or to another to even give advice on gambling is passing gambling information. So uh, it, it basically absolutely could, it doesn't necessarily mean it is, but it certainly made it the, the prospect of that being illegal. And it would certainly have a chilling effect on people wanting to do that for fear of falling afoul of the law. So it became much safer to just be inside of Nevada in Vegas, place your bets in Vegas, you talk to a bookie in Vegas, maybe talk to get your sports, get your, your betting advice in Vegas and do it all there um, and really facilitated it being the preeminent place uh, where, where that sort of activity took place. So um, the, the other thing that we have that we, we talked about a little bit earlier with the first attempt of federal regulation was the tax revenue and the idea that the federal government wants to um, allow for you know, some some mechanism for them to make money off this. But at a certain point, and I think this was largely correlated with the expulsion of the mafia out of Vegas, largely, and out of the sports betting realm, which was achieved largely by, I'd say, the mid-70s. It was um, starting to happen even under Bobby Kennedy in the early 1960s. But if any of you guys have seen uh, the movie Casino, uh, you'll see a lot of... Uh, uh, trials and travails that the um, uh, lefty, who, who is uh, Al Pacino's character, had in that movie with uh, his sports betting and trying to get licenses and having to pick up different names because it became a cat and mouse game where the government was trying to find every way they could to get the mafia out. So I, I believe it's once the government realized that uh, this was becoming a little bit more of a legitimized sort of operation, they realized that allowing for it is not necessarily a bad thing that uh, the whole sin tax aspect of having a 10% tax was no longer necessary. And the federal government's desire to dissuade people from doing this was not really at the forefront of the methodology anymore. At this point, it was more about creating a sustainable source of tax revenue. So the tax was lowered from 10% down to 2%. And this really was a major, major boon for sports books in Vegas and Nevada. And it became essentially the, the, the golden era. So that's in 1974, it goes down to 2%. Then again, in 1983, they again lowered it to 0.25%. So 20, a quarter of a percent of tax for wagers taken in compliance with state law. And they passed, it was called the Miscellaneous Revenue Act of 1982 that did this. So by this point, um, it, seemingly, while there is no overt regulation by the federal government of sports betting, the fact that they are lowering the tax revenue successively down from 10% to 2% and eventually to 0.25% implicitly means that the government was, on some level at least, uh, accepting the existence of it. And you could even make the argument that by lowering it as low as 0.25% may have even been kind of passively seeking to facilitate it as, again, a sustainable source of tax revenue. And uh, even furthermore, by this point, Las Vegas had become a, a cultural landmark of the United States. It's a huge uh, you know, tourist destination for people to go to. It's no longer by, certainly by the early 80s, being seen as this kind of, uh, you know, place that's not family oriented. It's frankly, by the early 80s, quite the opposite. You're getting, you know, concerts and shows and you can bring your kids to Vegas. And so it was certainly uh, to the stage where you could argue that the federal government was implicitly in support or at least not trying to oppose sports, sports wagering in Vegas within a legal sports context, of course, or rather within a legal state context. And so at this point, in the early 1980s, 1983, if any other state wanted to make it legal, they could? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. They would need to ratify it through their own state constitution. 
And you actually saw this, uh, I, I, the year is escaping my mind right now, but you know, famously New Jersey passed a similar law, which allowed for Atlantic, the rise of Atlantic City and all the, the casinos, sports betting and other operations that, uh, that emerged out of that, that area. And um, there were also other less sanctioned, but still fairly uh, established sports betting and gambling operations that occurred in the South on uh, these river boats on the Mississippi and, and things like that. So at this point, yeah, it's if a state decided it was in uh, their well-being to do so, the federal government was certainly not going to step in and try to prevent it in any way. So when uh, did that change? That did it change? Well, we know it, it did, did change. change. Yes, it did. <laughs> so in, yeah, in 1992 actually is when there was an, an absolute sea change. It was the first time the federal government stepped in and took really decisive steps to essentially create a blanket ban on sports wagering. The only exceptions that were allowed under this were the four states that up until this point had legalized it, which were Nevada, Oregon, Montana, and Delaware. So there was a law, it was called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. It is commonly referred to as PAPSA. So I'm gonna be referring to it as PAPSA for short. But PAPSA basically, as I said, it grandfathered in these four states by allowing them to essentially have their existing sports betting uh, products continue um, after the effect, uh, after PAPSA went into effect. But actually at that time, while Nevada, Oregon and Montana and Delaware had legalized sports betting, Nevada was the only state that really had what we would call a single game or Vegas style sports betting, which meant the, the other exempt states were essentially limited to kind of glorified sports themed lotteries or bingo style pub games, but they were not the traditional sports betting that uh, we would recognize today. The only place that that existed after passage of PAPSA and the only place that was essentially grandfathered in under this legislation was the state of Nevada in particular, the, the sports betting that was going on in Vegas. So because of this, Vegas became essentially the state with the only legal sports betting, at least as we know of it today. And that would actually remain in effect for the next 26 years that essentially Nevada would be the only state with traditional legal sports betting as we know today. Sorry, Who's responsible? I'm sure it's not your dog, but who's responsible for PASPA? Is that the attorney general at the time in 1992? No. So PASPA, any kind of legislation of this nature, it, it requires not only bipartisan support because of the very split political nature that we have in Congress today, and we certainly still have in Congress back then. So it would require buy-in from the House of Representatives. You need a majority of the House of Representatives, a majority of the U.S. Senate, and then you'd need the president, who was Bill Clinton at the time, to sign that into uh, sign that into law. So uh, it it became rather. Let me correct myself. Actually, the election was in 1992 for Bill Clinton. So this would have been George H. W. Bush would have been the uh, president to, to sign this into effect. So um, it it was a unified effort on the part of all of the federal government in the House of Representatives, Senate, and in the presidency to take this step to essentially ban sports betting. It was, you know, it was a little bit of a different time. I think people uh, at the time when they thought of sports betting, probably the first uh, first person or thing that would come to mind would be Pete Rose. And they would have thought, you know, sports betting is this uh, corrupt thing that can have a, a corrupting influence on the sports that we love. It will undermine the competition. I'm sure maybe the next thing that would come to people's mind would have been the 1919 Black Sox and the throwing of the World Series. And so I think Congress, in light of this, and, and you'll see uh, kind of throughout the history of baseball in particular, Congress has taken a very keen eye at wanting to regulate uh, baseball. They seem, you know, it's America's pastime. So um, this was essentially a gambit on the part of the federal government to try to basically have a blanket ban on all of this kind of stuff. So um, yeah, it was a unified effort on the part of the federal government. But interestingly, it, it made sports gambling a federal crime, but uh, unlike the Interstate Wire Act of 1961 that provided for direct 
criminal prosecution by of a sports better or of a sports book, this did something a little bit different. So this allowed the U.S. Attorney General, as well as professional and amateur sports organizations. So it's interesting. It's not just the government now they can step in. It's also, you know, the MLB, the NBA, whatever it may be. They can step in and bring a civil action to what's called enjoin violations. Enjoining a violation simply means they get an injunction which says you legally can no longer do this. And so this law created a mechanism where if, for instance, the MLB becomes aware that you know, some operation, some state is facilitating a gambling mechanism or gambling scheme over MLB games, this not only allowed the attorney general to step in, but the MLB could step in as a plaintiff and sue this other party to stop them from perpetrating that gambling scheme. So it was a little bit of a different approach to regulation, but it nonetheless was intended as a blanket ban and effectively operated as that uh, for, for quite a while, for the next 26 years. So Chris, you got a question? Yeah. So uh, Harry Reid was a Senate majority leader during this time. So, yeah. and he, Harry Reid, Senator Nevada, how yes. much do you think that was an influence on, because they wanted to protect Nevada's interests on it. So if it goes, you know, wide, they think they're going to lose their market share of sports betting goes up. And if you remember in the 90s, in the early 90s, that's when Vegas kind of um, had this boom where they had a lot of money. They built up Vegas. Mm -hmm. I was yeah. wondering if like, I was thinking the same thing, yeah. Chris, is like maybe they pushed for this so like it would attract people to Vegas. Yes, yeah, similar to what we're going to hear about later, right, with what's going on in California, protecting the Indian casinos, protecting the interest on it all like so they'd rather have no one have any more of it because they want to protect what their old money they're already making here oh yeah right you know uh, kind uh, of I, I think you're yeah. i think you're absolutely correct there i mean harry reed uh like any other senator has to look to their own constituency which would be the voters in nevada to get reelected. so while you know as a senator he should be concerned with uh national level issues the reality is he's concerned with satisfying the people who are going to reelect him. And so without a doubt, that was front and foremost in Harry Reid's mind. And I'll even kind of bring up the fact that Harry Reid has a, a long history with regulation of gambling. He was actually the commissioner of the Gaming Commission back in the 70s. Again, I'll call back to the movie Casino. If you guys haven't seen it, anyone listening, if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. It's an amazing movie and essentially largely depicting an entirely true story. But um, uh, I believe it's Lefty Rosenthal is his name, who's a famous uh, sports bookie. Uh, he was actually denied uh, his license and had to keep switching titles to try to evade the, the Gaming Commission. And at the time, the Gaming Commission was chaired by Harry Reid. Uh, <laughs> they got into a famous, it's on camera, you can see it on YouTube, it's interesting. They got into a famous dispute at the... Um, the, it was essentially a session of the gaming commission that was being called to withdraw Lefty Rosenthal's license, his gaming license. And there's a whole back and forth where Lefty is saying, did you or did you not have lunch with me the other day? He's basically trying to call into question the fact that Harry Reid is essentially, at least in Lefty's eyes, just as corrupt as Lefty is. So who are you to be regulating me, essentially? So it was a very interesting back and forth they had. And, and I think that... Um, yeah, Harry Reid was no stranger to the impact that legal and illegal sports gambling can have. But I, I certainly think, Chris, you are 100% right that this was a matter of just satisfying the constituency in recognition that based on the status quo of Nevada being the only state with legal sports betting as we know it today, wanting to preserve that status quo for the benefit of his state and under the belief that that would get him reelected. So, yeah, I think you're certainly onto it there. Wow. So uh, after PAPSA, you get the government stepping in again after the emergence of the internet because PAPSA in 1992, I mean, theoretically, yes, the internet was invented or was in existence in 1992, but it was so rudimentary that there was nothing you could do on it that, that even had any implication with sports betting or gambling generally. So in 2006, the federal government uh, decided that it was necessary to step in 
uh, and passed what was called the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act. It's UIGEA. So this was passed in 19, uh, rather in 2006. I'm sorry. It's okay. I think and, that's the uh, the government calling. Yeah, they're, like, oh, they're, like, oh, they're on to us. So this act basically it prohibited gambling businesses from knowingly accepting payments in connection with participation of another person in a bet or wager that involves the use of the internet and that's unlawful under federal or state law. So this act did a couple of things, but in one, what it did is it required the FDIC. Uh, which is the, the federal entity that basically insures all of our bank accounts. If you, you know, FDI insured bank account required the FDIC to ensure that U.S. financial institutions were monitoring and restricting various payment systems, online payment systems, things like, you know, PayPal, et cetera, that existed at the time, including use of credit cards and checks and wire transfers. So while the law did not make sports betting illegal, it was essentially not necessary to make it illegal because it was already illegal under PAPSA. It did, uh, uh, and it did not punish bettors themselves in any way. It actually did cause many of the online sports betting sites because this was a regulation on the, the websites themselves. It prohibited, it caused many of these sites to leave the U.S. to go overseas, which is why now a lot of these uh, sports books that are, are even currently existing now are based in, you know, random places in the Caribbean or other countries like that. So it, it, they were essentially driven overseas as a means to avoid this regulation by the FDIC that was facilitated by uh, the passage of this law. So while uh, there are basically plenty of sports betting sites that still serve um, U.S. sports bettors, these sites are now essentially all based offshore. Um, also, Costa Rica, Panama, or, or other jurisdictions where their own local laws in Costa Rica, Panama, et cetera, make their operations legal. And because they're being operated out of these countries and not within U.S. jurisdiction, they are at least theoretically falling outside the purview of this law, which is how they are essentially able to still be licensed and regulated entities that are able to accept U.S. players, although they're not physically located in the United States. So, so, so is it legal? Is it actually, if at this point in, let's say like 2008, a couple of years after this passed, if there's a website out of Costa Rica and an American citizen is betting on sports, is it, is that legal? So, I hesitate to say specifically if it's legal because there are, well, for one, I don't want to give legal advice, but oh, yeah, <laughs> another yeah, thing yeah. That is, it's very, that's why I said it in 2008, like this is well, not yeah, now. For sure, it for is sure. 2008. Good, good, good point. And also there's a, there's a frankly famous or infamous, uh, a pair of words that are commonly uttered in law school and it applies in this situation. It depends. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it would depend upon the law in the state in which the U.S. sports better is located. So if that state has a law which specifically prohibited the placing of such bets, then theoretically it would be illegal. I mean, that, that you know, could theoretically be the case. However, and we'll get into this a little bit later, if you're in a state that does not have a law that explicitly bars it or allows it, you could say it is not illegal. It's a little bit of a distinction than saying it's legal versus it's not illegal. There's no law that particularly sanctions it or authorizes it, but there, because there's no law that specifically bars it, it's not illegal. And which is why in function, these, these, these entities, these offshore sports books are able to operate overseas. They're free to post odds, accept wagers, and even send the payouts to US residents without any real over, oversight or falling afoul of any uh, legislation. So in practice, in function, uh, they are legal in so much as they're not illegal, if that makes sense. Hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like at the beginning when it, of the first phase of non-regulation, where 
there wasn't it didn't say that it was legal but it also didn't say that it was illegal we kind of like felt we kind of came right back to that we circled back right to that that point yeah yeah it's uh and it's a common it's a common thing not even just within gambling or sports betting but just in general a lot of aspects of 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 daily life and in society a lot of times the government will choose to sometimes step in and take authoritative actions to sanction or allow something. And other times they will take actions to specifically bar something. But then there's a whole mess of stuff that's not really either one or the other. It can be grayer and which is why largely it depends. So um, the, the reality is, is that, you know, a California resident today, or even in 2008, I'll say that are placing sports bets over um, using some of these platforms that are overseas are in very little, if any fear of any kind of repercussions from violating any laws. They function in the open. They advertise on the internet. They, they companies, uh, internet platforms and, and media websites, et cetera. They accept ad revenue from these companies to advertise on their websites. So it's so in the open and, and just kind of so uh, omnipresent that the, the idea that, um, it's illegal is just kind of silly, but technically speaking, yes, it's not, it's not legally sanctioned. So, uh, there's another aspect of this too, that's interesting. Uh, and I want to make a, a kind of a subtle distinction here is we've got our traditional sports betting, which is I bet, let's say on, um, you know, I'm going to bet Mike Trout hits a home run in the next angel game, right? That's just kind of a standard sports better. I'm going to bet this team beats the spread, right? Whatever it may be. But there, uh, to, as a distinction from that, you've got fantasy sports, which actually I'm not a huge sports better. I'm a little bit more into fantasy sports, so I, I know a bit more about this. But um, notably, for, for the first time ever, actually, the UIGEA created a, an exception, actually, within this federal anti-gambling legislation. It was an exception for fantasy sports. So it's interesting. The criteria for this exception were basically – that one, the prizes that were awarded have to be made known to the participants from the outset. So, you know, you enter a, a fantasy football league from the beginning, there's a hundred dollar prize out, you know, prize for first place, 75 for second, whatever it may be. And the amount of the prizes that are paid cannot be based on how many participants there are, nor the amount of their buy-in. So they have to be fixed set prizes from the beginning which are not related to or correlated to how much money people are betting, nor how many people are involved in it. That's the mm -hmm. first criteria. The second criteria is that all of the winning outcomes, so basically what it takes to, to win and get this prize, they have to reflect the relative knowledge and skill of the participants. And they have to be predominantly determined by accumulated statistical results. So what this means is, as opposed to a game of chance, which is traditional gambling, just period, um, and at least some in the federal government would just say sports betting, period, is a game of chance in so much as anything can happen. Trout can hit a home run or he might not hit a home run. But on the flip side, I think there's a real, uh, there's a real argument to be made, in fact, a recognition by the federal government at this point that this fantasy sports context context calls into uh, requires, frankly, knowledge and skill of the player of the better. So you going into a fantasy league, you need to know, you know, what's what's Mike Trout's uh, injury history like? Is he suffering from any kind of lingering injuries? You know, is he on a cold streak right now? Is he going up against this certain pitcher that he's good against or this other pitcher he's not good against? You know, what kind of feel is he playing away or at home? What is the stadium uh, he's playing at more likely to have a home run hit than not? These are all things that are not chance based. They are they are basically reflections of the skill and the knowledge of the, the participant. And so much they would set that aspect of it would satisfy the second criteria for an exception for fantasy sports. And then the last criteria is that the winning outcome cannot be based on the score or point spread of any real world team or combination of teams 
nor a single performance of any individual athlete in any single real world sporting event. So what this means is I can't bet to fall with this within this exception, mind you, I cannot just bet the angels are going to be the A's. That would be just betting one team beating another, or even a combination of teams. I can't bet that the A's uh, and the angels will win this week and two other teams will lose this week. That's just a combination of teams. I also can't bet on any single performance of a single athlete, which is why I mentioned earlier, betting whether Mike Trout's going to hit a home run or not. What this does allow for, which is what we traditionally think of when we think of fantasy sports, is getting players from a bunch of different teams and creating a literal fantasy, a fake team, which is a composite of all these different players. And the implication of this is, is that you're not betting on things that are purely outside of chance because your selection of these players, what, what person you take from this team versus that team and what combination of people you put together is very unique and is a reflection of your knowledge and, and your beliefs about how well they're going to do and are not purely based on chance. So luckily the federal government was at least savvy enough to recognize that there is this very important distinction and created for the first time in any kind of federal level legislation, this cutout to allow for fantasy sports. And it's through this exemption of this law that our current fantasy sports platforms that we all know and love, ESPN, Yahoo, et cetera, where you can actually have payouts. You can, I, you know, you just join a random league and there's a payout that's facilitated by Yahoo. It's not just through you and your friends Venmoing each other. Yahoo will send you out money. The only reason they're allowed to do this is because it falls within the exception of this particular legislation. And that all was packaged in the 2006 act. Correct. Yes. So the 2006 act was largely, it, it was an, essentially meant to stifle internet gambling in the games of chance realm, but it was meant to, if not facilitate, then at least allow for the fantasy sports aspect of it to uh, occur online. Because I think as early as 2006, people were realizing that, you know, while, yeah, fantasy sports are in a very traditional sense, gambling, maybe, they're also a separate beast from your traditional sports gambling in so much as again it reflects your relative skill and knowledge and and i think that's i think we can kind of all agree that the person who wins your fantasy league is not generally the person who just gets lucky they're the person who makes the right moves pick, picks the right person up off the waiver wire at the right time or maybe holds off on the waiver wire until someone else comes later the season that they want so all of these things apologize all of these things are, are, I think we can agree on, and it was nice that the federal government stepped in and recognized them as well. So, so I have, I have a question. So, yeah. if if in that act it it talks about um, if you win your fantasy league, if you if you sign up for a Yahoo fantasy league that has like a payout, and you win that, that's allowed because the person brought in knowledge and it didn't bring in luck. Yeah. How is that different from sports betting? Because like, let's say like if, if just like the random person bets on sports, then yeah, it might be luck. But if a person is bringing knowledge to the table and has a strategy, does that allow for sports betting? It's a great question. And I I really, I see what you're getting at here and, and I'm inclined to agree with you. The, the idea of, traditional sports betting being a purely a game of chance is probably not very accurate because even in a pure situation of, Oh, is Mike Trout going to hit a home run or not next game or next game, that, that sort of bet, while there's a a degree of chance to that, whether you decide to make that bet or not is also a reflection of your knowledge that would lead you to believe whether or not he is going to hit a home run. So yeah, in, in all fairness, I, I agree that the traditional sports betting context does require knowledge and skill. However, merely bringing that to bear on traditional sports betting is not enough to fall under this exception. It's really the third criteria, and I'll, I'll reread it here for you, is really what differentiates your fantasy from your traditional sports betting. And it's that no winning outcome 
can be based on the score or point spread of any real world team or combination of teams, nor on any single performance of an individual athlete in any single real world sporting event. So this means that you only way that the federal government will acknowledge that your bet is truly a reflection of your knowledge and skill versus chance. And I can go into this a little bit more depth. I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but there there are um, two different tests that have been levied in various states to determine whether a a fantasy, essentially uh, a fantasy betting scheme falls under this exception. You've got the, the dominant factor versus the predominance test. These tests basically just get to uh, what is the, the chief determining factor in whether someone's going to win or not in this context? Is it chance or is it their skill or knowledge? And the way that the federal government fell onto this question is the only way that they believe that the predominant or dominant factor is your skill or knowledge is by forcing you essentially to create these fantasy teams, forcing you to pick people from this team and that team and put them together into a combination, because in that way, it does not reflect any kind of real world team or, or anything else that you could just essentially get lucky on. It, it really, because of the number of variables that go into who you pick and when you pick and who you decide to start, who you don't start, the number of variables there necessarily requires let's just say a higher level of knowledge and skill necessarily. Whereas a traditional sports bet, while let's say if you're making a smart bet, it does require skill or knowledge, making the bet itself really doesn't. I mean, you, you can bet whether or not Mike Trout's going to hit a home run and, you know, without, you can just know he's a good player and, and that's pretty much all you need to know. So it doesn't, necessarily implicate that skill or knowledge in the same way that fantasy sports does, at least according to the federal government. I am in fact inclined to agree with you that if you're, uh, if you're smart with your sports betting, it probably does implicate quite a lot of knowledge and skill. And obviously from listening to your podcast, I know that's true. All right. Well, what happened in between 2006 when they banned internet betting in America? Yeah. So and now, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, so the, the next big thing we have uh, from you know the banning internet uh, internet sports betting, but allowing for internet fantasy sports. The next big uh, marker that we have on our chronology, which it's it's a little bit of background, but it will explain the next thing we're going to get to is New Jersey. So um, in New Jersey, they passed what's called the Sports Wagering Act of 2012. And um, this was basically an effort for New Jersey to realize what was technically, it it was legalized gambling, but it had not been uh, essentially facilitated in the sports betting realm. And so this law was specifically passed to address and legalize sports betting. So under this law, uh, gamblers could place bets on professional and college sport teams, but it's interesting, not on any New Jersey college sport team or any other college team playing in New Jersey. So they were still trying to preserve the uh, amateur status, so to speak, of college sports. And uh, interestingly, it created this weird carve out for New Jersey that somehow recognized the legitimacy of betting on these sorts of games in any other state, but you could not do it in New Jersey. I think it's largely a reflection of New Jersey only has jurisdiction over what happens in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So that's the only thing that they could regulate. But nonetheless, it, I do find it interesting that while they allow for the sports betting on professional and college sports teams, they specifically bar it for teams in New Jersey. So with that as kind of background, the passage of this law, what you had was uh, the NCAA step in and along with three other professional sports leagues, they step in and they file uh, an action in federal court against uh, New Jersey's governor at the time and other state officials. And they're seeking to enjoin, which again, I spoke about this earlier, um, that the uh, earlier federal legislation, uh, that while it did not criminalize the sports betting, it did allow for either the attorney general or representatives of professional sports organizations to enjoin or get an injunction, maybe in layman's terms, legally forced them to stop, I guess, uh, enjoin the state law on the grounds 
and that at least the NCAA and these professional sports organizations were arguing that the New Jersey law violated PAPSA. So uh, it, it was essentially, uh, I, think I'm, I think I keep saying PAPSA, but I believe it's actually PASPA. But regardless, <laughs> the, it, it violated the federal legislation, which was a, the 1992 blanket ban on sports betting. So on the flip side, New Jersey, after having passed their sports betting law, they countered that PASPA violates the Constitution's anti-commandeering principle. And I'll explain what this means briefly, but um, the, there is something called the Supremacy Clause. The Supremacy Clause says that the federal government has supremacy over state governments. So if the federal government wants to pass a law on something and a state government wants to pass a law on something, the federal government will always be able to trump the state government. The, this idea is called preemption. The federal law preempts the state law. However, with that said, if there is something that is purely within the realm and jurisdiction of a state government, um, in this case, it would be sports betting, as an internal New Jersey intrastate activity, the federal government cannot commandeer the state by forcing them to modify or repeal their laws to make them fall into line with the federal law. And this is the 10th Amendment. It says, powers delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by the states, are reserved to the states. And out of this comes this anti-commandeering doctrine. So it says the Congress may not commandeer the state regulatory process by ordering states to enact or administer a federal regulatory program. So this is the kind of battleground we have. On one side, we've got uh, we've got the uh, professional sports organizations and the main plaintiff, the NCAA, saying this New Jersey law allowing for sports betting violates. Uh, PASPA and, and violates the federal law on sports betting. On the flip side, we've got New Jersey saying, no, this law is, a, is essentially a, a mechanism of commandeering over New Jersey's jurisdiction to govern its own economic activity. So this is a classic battle of federalism, of federal and state power. And it's why essentially the United States Supreme Court took on what's called a writ of certiorari, which just simply means that the Supreme Court decided to, of its own volition, uh, voluntarily take this case for review, and uh, they, they decided to rule on it because of the implications of it. And what they held was that PASPA's prohibition of New Jersey's authorization of sports gambling violated the anti-commandeering rule because it unequivocally dictated what New Jersey, what their state legislature, could or could not do. And they further held, the court, Supreme Court further held that the prohibition of state licensing of sports gambling suffered from the exact same defect because it basically was a direct order from the federal government to the state legislature, which means that the federal government is trying to commandeer the state legislature to do its goals. And the Supreme Court stepped in under this anti-commandeering doctrine and said, absolutely not, this is not allowed. So what this decision effectively did is ended Congress's power to federally ban state implementation of sports gambling legislation. Uh, it was referred to as, quote, a direct affront to state sovereignty. And it's in fact, since this Supreme Court decision, which is basically, I think really without any argument, the most influential and important Supreme Court decision as it involves sports gambling that has occurred so far. And it's since the passage, since this holding in, in 2018, that legal sports betting has actually generated more than $2.45 billion in federal, state, and local tax revenue. So you can see how this basically just opened up the gates for the states to step in and act outside the purview of the federal government to either allow or prohibit sports gambling as they see fit. So with this, we get ushered in what I'm referring to as the second period of federal non-regulation. Whereas the first period was basically, you could call it a form of just apathy. It was the federal government, while theoretically having the ability to step in, choosing not to, maybe just viewing it as not a particularly big problem, 
not important enough to pass legislation on. Here we actually have the second period of non-regulation being a result of the Supreme Court's prohibition of such federal banning. And because of this, it's now actually possible for sports books to operate legally in the US. So basically there has been no legislation passed since this, uh, since this holding in 2018 on the federal level, which is legalized or illegalized activity um, outside of um, the fantasy sports exemption that already exists under the UIGEA. So since then, over half of the states in the United States have made gambling on sporting events legal since 2018. You can see as a result of that, essentially, there was a genuine desire on the parts of the states to enact this kind of legislation to allow for sports betting. And it was really only the federal government and the, the passage of, of PASPA that essentially was barring them from doing this. And so after the holding in, in uh, the, the 2018 holding in um, NCAA, Murphy v. NCAA, that you get the state saying, hey, now it's our opportunity. And, and they're getting the tax revenue that comes from it. They're getting even tourism from people coming in to play sports bets and things like that. So it's really now up to states on a state-by-state uh, basis to decide what they want to do. And I, um, I guess this is a good opportunity to kind of transition from our, our discussion of the federal government and the federal government's regulation of sports betting to kind of now focus in on California um, because now we've got this open door and now it's up to California to decide whether or not it wants to implement sports betting. Yeah, Sean, I was I had a quick question. Do you uh, ever foresee it becoming legal federally? And what, would, uh, what kind of hurdles do we have to, to jump to get to that point? I don't necessarily. And the reason I say that is I don't think it's necessary to make it federally legal. And I think in light of the decision in the Supreme Court decision in uh, Murphy v. NCAA with the Supreme Court pretty unequivocally coming to the conclusion that this kind of regulation of sports betting is not the federal government's business. The federal government does not have a role in regulating what a state can do or not do as it involves sports betting, that basically what you're going to get is if theoretically in the future, it is legal across the entire country to have sports betting, it will not be because of any federal legislation that allows it. It will be because every state, each individually have decided that they want to allow it. It is unless there's a new Supreme Court holding on this and and views are, are different than the previous holding. As it stands right now, it's only the state government's role to step in here. So I don't envision any federal legislation because while, while PASPA's uh, federal regulation was to ban sports gambling, theoretically, a federal law allowing or just blanket authorizing sports betting could actually also be susceptible to the same anti-commandeering doctrine that PASPA was, because if you theoretically have a state that does not allow sports gambling, and then the federal government steps in and says, oh, it's legal nationwide to do this, you're basically doing the same thing just in reverse. You're having the federal government basically force the state government to take a position on sports gambling that the state does not want to do. And that becomes another aspect of anti-commandeering that the Supreme Court has at least currently said unequivocally is not allowed. Good so, yeah, to answer your question in short, I, I don't see any okay. federal legislation legalizing sports gambling. It will be on a state-by-state -state basis going forward. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast today, Sports Betting on U.S. Law with Sean LaPel. Um, I, I can't believe that the managers in the 1800s got to bet on their teams. They even, it sounded like they even from that news article, the newspaper article, that they could even take bets as bookies on their team. Just think if Pete Rose was alive in the 1800s and not the 1900s, uh, he would have been, nobody would have even said anything. So uh, we, uh, don't forget, we have hashtag let Pete in. We're trying to get Pete Rose into the Hall of Fame, and we'd love to get him onto the podcast if anybody knows 
anybody out there where we can contact him to get us him on the podcast, uh, let us know. Uh, but that was a great interview with Sean Lampell. Uh, and we got another one for you. So in a couple days, we got episode 20B coming out, and that's going to be about sports betting law in the state of California. Uh, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe this podcast five stars. Subscribe on our YouTube at YouBetSmart, and follow us on Twitter and all the other social media platforms at YouBetSmart. All right, guys. Thanks for listening.